Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Yo, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dasha Agulnik, who's an expert in gut health. And we're going to discuss specifically gut health for people who enjoy resistance training and eating in a certain way to either lose fat or build muscle. But first and foremost, Dasha, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. My first question for you, which I ask every guest, is who are you? What do you do? And why are you so awesome at it? (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, I am Dasha. I am a registered dietitian specializing in gut health and hormones for athletes. I run a full coaching business where we help people uncover whatever Uh, GI or inflammatory issues that are causing their hormonal issues uh, that are then affecting their performance in the gym or their inability to lose fat or gain muscle properly. Um, I've worked with bodybuilders before. I've worked with CrossFit athletes, um, collegiate athletes, professional athletes. It's really about um, optimizing metabolism. And the reason why I'm so awesome at it (laughs) um, would be because I've gone through my own gut issues, but I also went to school for nutritional epidemiology, which is the study of how diet affects disease. So I'm a huge nerd. My entire thesis was about understanding how to optimize what we eat and tracking that exact uh, molecule from start to finish. So whether that be fructose versus glucose versus galactose versus uh, maltodextrin. How do we digest each individual carbohydrate, amino acid, fatty acid? Where is it shuttled into our bodies? That is what I spent the majority of my research in learning and understanding, as well as at the same time, I was really into optimizing how to put on muscle more, most effectively, right? So how do we eat And how do we train in order to build the most ideal human, the healthiest human? And I want to make sure that everyone who's listening understands that fitness, from a scientific perspective, it is not how you look. It is how long you live and how able you are to replicate, okay? So your hormones and how much you're able to replicate, as well as how long you can live, that is scientific fitness, right? When we think about a species over time, how do they have success? It's because they're able to replicate. They have a lot of offspring. They're able to pass on their genetic code most optimally. So when we think of the ideal human, that's really what we want to understand is how do we build that healthiest, that fittest human through diet and lifestyle? And so that's really what I do. 
and what my research was in and what I practice now with my clients. That is really fascinating. Thank you for going into your background. I didn't know as much as that, of course. (laughs) And uh, it's just extremely interesting to hear. So you mentioned, actually, uh, that um, in order to improve gut health or maintain gut health in people who are active, the key is to optimize metabolism. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to start, I always like to start with definitions so that we're all on the same page. So it wasn't exactly the first question on the list, but I think it'd be very interesting if you could define what metabolism is for the audience. Metabolism could be a numerous amount of things, but it is our energy intake and expenditure, I would say, uh, very broadly put. It is how we eat. It is how it's fueled into the body. Um, I would say that is our metabolism. And it's influenced by hormones, your thyroid hormones, your satiety, uh, your blood sugar level. It's influenced by so many things. Um, But metabolism, I would say, when we think about it, is just how our bodies convert and move energy. Perfect. Thank you very much. And then on the topic of definitions, then... How would you define a healthy gut? So a healthy gut would be the most diverse. We actually don't know what a healthy gut is. There is no definition of a healthy gut right now in the scientific literature because we don't know the exact amounts of what types of bacteria or fungi or parasites. We don't know what exact amounts of all of those species defines a healthy gut and in what quantities. And so for that reason, we have pretty general guidelines, which says that high alpha diversity. So between, so you're thinking of like, if we want to break it down in the simplest manner, I like to say the healthiest gut is the one that's able to tolerate and utilize the most amount of food Um, because every single food will feed a different microbe and regulate our processes different as a result of its nutritional composition. And so when we do that and we have, we're eating a broad diversity, a broad variety of food, different types, we're feeding those different bacterial colonies. And as a result, they're all happy. Think about it like a little neighborhood and everyone has a house. That forms a happy family. Now, when one of them starts monopolizing, right? And we start building all these houses, all this construction, all of these things, the other guys have to dwindle. We can only fit in one community, right? So the other guys start disappearing or start going down in, in the quantity that they're in. And as a result, that forms dysbiosis, okay? That, that monopolization of one specific type, that's what the dysbiosis is. So when we think of healthy gut, we think of diversity. We think of, uh, Good good amounts of good bacteria in, in healthy amounts. <laughs> it sounds very broad, but hopefully visually you can kind of start to understand. No, I really liked your analogy with the neighborhood. Very, very clear. And uh, again, excellent answer. Thank you. Now, since we're talking about specifically how to optimize muscle building and fat loss, could you explain how gut health can impact our ability to lose fat and build muscle if it can impact that at all in any way? 
So when I saw you wanted to ask me this question, I remembered there was a paper and I wanted to make sure that I could provide the the name of it for anyone who wanted to go down further down the rabbit hole. But there's a great paper by Hughes et al. 2021 that has a really great graphic demonstrating how the large intestine, the microbiota, all of the food that we eat modulate is modulated by that microbiota to then impact our GI barrier function, any distress, any micronutrient absorption, glycogen storage. So now we've gotten to glycogen storage, right? From the large intestine to the bacteria that are now converting it, and now it's impacting our GI barrier. And that will facilitate how much glycogen we store. So if you're familiar in the bodybuilding world, in the fitness world, what is glycogen? It's our stored carbohydrates that we use in in our muscles to pull energy from. And this is very, very important for the gym because if we have carbs safe and shuttled in proper areas, that's what builds like that filled out physique, that blown up kind of SpongeBob arms that you can think of, or the bodybuilder physique, that is glycogen because there's so many carbs and water that's filling out those muscles, giving it that that size. Um, And that, of course, is energy, which means that in the gym, that muscle can now perform better. It can perform more. It can start building itself. And so that's why it's so important to have a healthy gut is because if you have a healthy gut, you have healthy amounts of uh, food that's being shuttled to the right places. Now, in states of inflammation, that that food's not being shuttled there. Your body is in an SOS state. It's a high cortisol state. It is inflamed. And as a result, it's going to pull energy from the muscles and deplete more energy there versus your fat cells. So you will burn more muscle in a state of uh, distress in the in the body than you will pull from fat. So it's very important that if you are inflamed, you're not in a diet because at that point, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. You want to be at maintenance when you're healing your body. You want to be providing it with enough nutrients in order to support proper hormonal and metabolic pathways. So we don't want to be in a deficit, in a state of high distress for the body. We want to be at maintenance. What do you think about going into a surplus? What would be the downside or potential benefit there, if any? So if you're in a state of inflammation, you may have a lower digestive capacity. So you might not be able to digest as much food in one sitting because your enzymatic production might not be uh, most optimal because of whatever infection or inflammation is going on in the gut. And so as a result, you may actually, again, shoot yourself in the foot if you're in a surplus with GI issues because you're still inflamed, but now your body has excess nutrients in that surplus and it'll probably get deposited as fat. That makes sense. Thank you for clarifying. I suspected that would be the case, but obviously I wanted to ask. Now I will ask you a little bit more about potential um, states of distress in the body and uh, how the gut might be affected by those. But before we get to the, um, let's say, state of these ease, uh, let's talk about the state of ease. So if we want to maintain 
a healthy gut? What aspects of lifestyle, training and nutrition can we leverage to do that? Mm-hmm. So this is what I teach and preach in our speed pillars. So if you want to speed up your metabolism, you need to focus on these speed pillars. And those stand for sleep, personal stress, environmental stress, exercise, and diet. And if you anyone who's listening is interested in learning more and diving deeper into this, I have a full course on digestion. It's um, just a mini course that kind of goes into digestion so you understand where to start how to start with those gut health pillars and truly change your life. It talks, it gives you a meal plan. It gives you a food journal to get started. It gives you supplements that if you need them, but it also talks about the evidence-based backgrounds about uh, what is the most optimal diet for the gut. What are the supplements that are supported by research and which ones are uh, going to be a waste of your money, like glutamine, probiotics, things like that, which sound really nice. Greens powders sound really nice, but unfortunately the data is not there. So if anything, I would say get in touch with me. I will teach you more about speed pillars. And and on my Instagram page, I have 50 ways to improve your gut. Um, So there's a bunch of different resources. Just shoot me a DM and we'll send you whatever you need. Brilliant. But in summary, sleep, personal environmental stress, exercise and diet, essentially the basics of a healthy lifestyle is what we're looking at. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Now, speaking of exercise, exercise is a stressor. So we were talking about de-stressing the gut and uh, exercise could contribute to that. I'm interested in uh, your views on how training can impact gut health in both positive ways and negative ways. So there's three main ways that training influences the gut. The first is going to be decreased blood flow to the gut, right? We're pumping blood into our heart, into our muscles, and there's not a lot going into our guts. This leads to low oxygen levels or hypoxia, less nutrients, and can cause that cramping sensation that we feel. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that it can affect the gut. The second is mechanical force. The actual movement of the organs when you are running, up, down, up, down, that mechanical force can cause increased irritation. And then lastly, neuroendocrine function. So exercise activates our autonomic nervous system, which increases our stress. You just mentioned that. And that's what the increased stress is, is from this activation of this nervous system. Now, this also triggers the release of circulating cortisol, catecholamines, epinephrine, norepinephrine in those peripheral tissues and in the gastrointestinal tract. Again, this is resulting in that reduced blood flow to the GI tract, causing oxidative stress, energy depletion, low oxygen levels, and all of these things impact and damage the gut barrier, increasing your intestinal permeability. If you've ever heard of leaky gut, endotoxemia, which is the die-off of um, a lot of those toxins and their lipopolysaccharides that are being released. Um, nutrient depletion, inflammation, all of these things, they're being um, influenced by exercise. So all of those things, I would say those are the main three things. We have decreased blood flow, we have the actual mechanical force, and then we also have the hormonal aspect as well. That makes sense. And uh, how can we minimize this uh, impact that training can have as a stressor on the gut? Great question. So I would say Increasing the 
or changing up the amount that you're doing. So practicing yoga, increasing your rest days, decreasing volume, decreasing load. Maybe you go on a guided meditation walk. Um, walking is the only form of exercise. Walking is the only form of exercise. Again, walking is the only form of exercise that will decrease stress levels. Every other form will increase because our body has to adapt to that stressor that we just uh, kind of exposed it to. So things that you can do too, a mechanical force that I talked about, the up and down of the running, swap running for rowing. Swap that endurance exercise for resistance training and keep your load um, at a good enough weight where you're not going to failure, where you have maybe three to five reps left in the tank, or you're not using as heavy a weight, so you're not stimulating any sort of severe stress response in the system. You can practice by habitual carbohydrate intake, increasing mobility. There's so many things. It's funny that you ask me these questions because I'm going, I have a uh, Gut Health for Athletes webinar that I'm doing next month with Diagnostic Solutions, who runs the GI map on all the stool tests. And I'm presenting to them. And so I'm doing this whole, this exact, like it sounds like basically the lecture that oh, great. I'm doing will be, will be there. So if anyone wants to join, um, we can send you the link of how to join for that. But yeah, all of these things can help to minimize the impact of training on gut health. Follow-up question on that. Would we, we would only need to worry about this if we were noticing a lot of maybe abnormal levels of stress from training, correct? Correct. Or if you're an athlete, you understand and you know you can be proactive about this, right? You're like, oh, okay, I drank last night. I didn't sleep as a result. I didn't get into deep sleep, into that REM sleep. Should my training today be heavy, hard, and loaded? Absolutely not, right? Our goal as athletes and as human beings is to take on some stress to a degree that we are able to recover from. So if you think about a balancing act, right, where the scale is dipping to one side, you always want that balanced. Or you want the recovery to be slightly above so that you can have a hard training session or you can recover from whatever infection that you have. So if anything, I would say pick and choose your battles and be proactive about it. If you know you didn't eat well, don't go train. If you know you have, I think someone recently texted me and he was like, oh my gosh, I just had a huge episode. I was squatting and I almost passed out. And I was like, well, are you going heavy and hard? Yeah, yeah, of course. And I said, well, did you rest and did you eat before you trained? Oh, you know what? I just had a protein shake like five hours ago. I was like, are you insane? <laughs> why do you think your gut flared up and your entire system flared up? Think about how much stress that is on the system and how unprepared it is to tackle a training session. So always be proactive, always be smart and rationalize your stress levels, whether that be from food, exercise, sleep, personal stress, environmental stress, right? We're thinking back to those speed pillars. Any of those stressors can affect your gut. 
Thanks so much for clarifying that, because when we're talking about states of distress in the body, I wouldn't want a listener to misinterpret and think that if everything is running normally, all of a sudden they need to swap all of the resistance training for yoga and not do anything hard ever again. We're not trying to say that you need to train easy. We're trying to say, the way I like to put it to my clients is, if you want to make progress in training, and we need to train hard to accomplish that, you need to respect your recovery capability. Yes, and you have to remember that if you're a couch potato, that's inflammation. Like that is your stressor. You being on the couch and not training is your stressor. So you have to balance out that that scale that we were just talking about where you exercise in a good enough way that actually promotes a positive outcome. Exactly. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And another question I had was, you mentioned several times that walking is the only form of exercise that doesn't increase inflammation. Now, I'm wondering if there are levels of uh, walking that could actually increase inflammation. Like, for example, we're talking, you know, if somebody in our um, field with athletes, we can often find people who are doing 15,000, 20,000 steps per day. So I'm wondering, would that contribute to inflammation and distress? I cannot put a quantitative number on it, but Mm -hmm. yes. Any form of over-exercising will be a stressor on the system because it is uh, energy output. Remember back to metabolism Mm -hmm. and energy and intake and output. Um, It still is requiring your metabolism to be focused on blood flow that is moving to other parts of the body and not focusing on using those calories to regenerate cells and heal and overcome infection. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I just want to prevent any listener who's thinking, oh, I, I should do I'll more just yoga. Walk it all I'll up. just exactly <laughs> I'll do more yoga, but I'll also walk 30,000 steps to offset the Crazy. calories that I couldn't burn by running on a treadmill. No, remember, calorie deficit is a stress. You want and people too, they're like, oh well great. Well I'll just add in cardio while I'm bulking. And I understand that for a heart health perspective. However, there are ways to elicit cardiovascular improvements away from actual cardio. And at the end of the day, you are still basically putting in extra calories to burn out extra calories if you add cardio into a bulk. So keep that in mind too. Yeah, that makes sense. So since we are on the topic of um, distressing the gut, then at this point, I would like to know what kind of um, GI issues you found that you've seen that seem to be perhaps more common in people, in pe- the people that we're trying to address here, people who train and eat in a certain way, in a surplus or in a deficit in order to respectively build muscle or lose body fat. Mm-hmm. The most common I will see are SIBO, dysbiosis, H. pylori, hemorrhoids from the straining, and hernias from the straining of the actual lifting. So hemorrhoids, hernias, which can cause a lot of GI infections and inflammation and poor motility. Um, But the main thing that I want to go back to is in fitness, we go through caloric deficits and bulks, right? And Mm -hmm. so 
caloric deficit is, again, I said, a stressor on the system. It downregulates our metabolism. It downregulates our need to produce digestive enzymes. It increases our risk of inflammation and infection. Um, so those chronic periods of, of stress lead often to SIBO and uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because the motility and the ability of the body to actually metabolize food quickly enough has gone away. Now food is sitting there because your hormones are crap because you haven't been eating enough for so long that food is sitting there and overgrowth can happen. And so I see that happen in caloric deficits a lot. But alternatively, if you're bulking and you have 5,000, 10,000 calories that you're eating, and again, this is perspective of your individual body. Some, for some people, that bulk may look different. But whatever your bulk is, your body has to be able to keep up with digesting that food. And if it can't, we go back to food is sitting there. It's not being digested. It's feeding microbes and overgrowth. Okay. So whether you have high calories or low calories, the happy medium always think about balance, think about moderation. And if anything in life has taught you anything, it should be that balance is key for everything. Our systems love to be balanced. So are you suggesting that it's extreme deficits and extreme surpluses that can cause this? So, or, or I, any. Any long term, right? I mean, I've, and there's so many other things that can cause infection during that time. But I would say, like, if you've been bulking for three or four months, even in a hard, heavy bulk, you know it. You're burping all the time, like, you're nauseous at the look, the sights of food. Your body's having a hard time digesting the food. And at that point, that's what I'm saying is going to be eliciting a increased risk of overgrowth is because your body just can't keep up with all the food that it's intaking. And so sometimes I find strategies that'll help will have like high days and low days where you can give your, you can back off for a couple days and then you can push and then we just push and pull systems. That makes sense. So essentially, this is a risk that one needs to be aware of if they want to go on a physique development process where they alternate uh, deficits and surpluses. It, it, the risk is there. There is no way to eliminate it if you are wanting to uh, um, take on this endeavor. Mm -hmm. There's, I would say you can always support the system, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. ways and mechanisms. I talk about it in that course about what you can do to improve your stomach acid levels and things like that. But at the end of the day, you're still putting in, it's, it's just like you're, like I said, you're getting on the Stairmaster to only eat the food back. Does that make sense? Yes. Like you're not really help. You're just kind of putting a bandaid on the, on the real problem, which is that you've been in a bulk for way too long and the system is overloaded and, and maybe can't keep up right now. Yeah, that makes sense. I understand. And, and it makes sense as well um, because ultimately our body's preferred state is balance or homeostasis. And that includes uh, balance in terms of calorie balance, sustained maintenance is likely the only way to limit or eliminate this risk. So thank you for clarifying that. Now, let's say that somebody suspects that they had a they have a gut related problem and uh, there's a lot of misinformation about gut health. And uh, sometimes doctors are not 
um, equipped with the knowledge to help patients who go to them. So if somebody has this suspicion, what steps would you suggest that they take to um, find a solution to it? So testing, finding a diagnosis, a root cause, uh, where would they start? First, you have to understand if you need testing. You have to understand if you have all the basics. What do, Am I still sick? Am I even sick to begin with? And if I am sick, what kind of tests do I need for my specific symptoms? Um, and that's going to look different on everyone. Again, that mini course just goes into the tests that I usually use in my practice and helps you to navigate whether what's considered normal bloat and what's considered distension or not. Okay, that makes sense. So first you need to identify, am I actually sick? Yeah, like, am I actually sick? Or is my diet and lifestyle causing me to have these issues? That makes sense. And let's say that somebody is actually sick, and they identify the correct test to take. What kind of practitioner would they work with? Obviously, somebody like you. Um, but also, if you had to give a give a list like physicians functional medicine doctors who would you recommend yeah i mean um someone with experience dealing with whatever issue you have is going to be first and foremost Um, but i can tell you that in our practice with an integrative setting i'm usually involving myself which is a dietitian i'm involving a physician uh through insurance i know in america america is very unique but like we sometimes they can get discounted tests or tests run uh, by their doctors through insurance. It's not all free, unfortunately, (laughs) a lot of it here. So um, I usually try and work with their doctor to have the doctor order it so that it's through insurance. Um, So we'll have registered dietitian, we'll have a doctor, I might refer out to a therapist for that mind body de-stressing kind of component. I might refer out to a pelvic floor therapist to work on their pelvic floor function. to help with bowel movements and things like that. Um, but those are the main ones I would say I refer to, uh, sometimes an acupuncturist or a masseuse. Um, they're different kind of, those would be the main ones I would say. Thank you very much. That's really helpful. Now, um, in the second part of this interview, I want to throw your way some foods and supplements so you've mentioned some supplements yourself that might not be backed by evidence there is a currently a trend that i've noticed in um, the fitness community to promote certain in quotes gut health foods and supplements and as we've been implying not all of them are legitimate so i am going to just uh give you the list one at a time obviously not all at once because otherwise it would be overwhelming and confusing and uh, if you could for for those supplements that people may not know if you could explain what they are and if it's pretty obvious what, what it is that we're talking about if you could uh, explain how they could impact your gut health whether in a positive or negative way so that we can uh, bust some myths for the audience so okay. the first one would be protein bars. Okay, so I think everyone knows what a protein bar is, right? Yeah, I think we're cool over there. Okay, so a protein bar is going to be, it could be bad or it could be good. It really, at the end of the day, depends on the ingredients. And for honestly, a lot of these that supplements that you had suggested, I might give the same answer. So with okay. protein bars, 
it depends. You really want to look for minimal ingredients. You want to look for like low amounts of added sugars. Um, but from a gut health perspective, you want to look at uh, lowered chicory root or inulin levels. Those can really irritate the gut. Sugar mm. alcohols can really irritate the gut. Um, those ones would be the main ones, I would say. And then also in America, we have something called the RX bar, which is five in, three ingredients five ingredients who cares but it's a solid brick like i swear to you it sounds like this if you pull it up to your counter i'm familiar yeah and people eat it and they're like but it's clean and healthy and i'm like you guys are swallowing a brick <laughs> you think your stomach's gonna enjoy swallowing a brick excuse me so again just think about like backing up for a second like Yes, ingredients can be great, but think about the actual texture of the food because soft puree, juice, smoothies, obviously those are going to be a lot easier to digest than something like a brick or think about things like steak or something that's tough and chewy and, and more of like hard nuts or a crunchy something. Those are going to be harder to uh, digest. Just think about if you want to pour water into imagine pouring water into whatever food you're thinking of and if it disintegrates or not how long does it take to disintegrate if it takes a really long time to disintegrate something like or steak it's going to take a long time to disintegrate so you can tell that that has a longer digestive capacity or it has a it'll require a lot of digestive capacity to digest that food versus if you put uh, water into a smoothie you're done. <laughs> There's yeah. no digestive, right? Like you're done. It's already, it's, it's pre-digested, right? Um, so that's what I would think of visually. That's a really interesting suggestion, actually, because it's, uh, yeah, it, visually it's, uh, it clicked with me right away. So right. with um, protein bars, then we're looking at texture, but also we're looking out for polyols or sugar alcohols, inulin and chicory roots. Mm-hmm. And uh, my the next one on the list would be protein powders. What kind of ingredients would you look out for in uh, in those? So there's actually research now. There's one study that shows that the microbiome or the virome of the whey transfers into your gut, which means the quality of your whey protein really, really matters because that's going to be found in your gut and can modulate your gut. Now, the easy the reason why I struggled with this is because a lot of people with GI issues can't digest whey. They bloat from it. They get GI upset. Maybe they have some sort of condition that they need to go through an elimination diet for, and thus they're, they can't take whey. And so for that yeah. reason, I created Corporform Protein, which is plant-based. Um, but when it comes to choosing a plant-based protein powder, the amino acids are off. So my protein powder is the only one on the market that has a one-to-one amino acid ratio uh, comparison to whey. So you do not need to consume double the amount to get more amino acids to then um, elicit the muscle building effects. So it's filled mm-hmm. with enough essentials and leucine to elicit a stimulating muscle building effect after one scoop of consumption. Now, Obviously, in your country, I don't have my product uh, available. So if you do have to avoid whey, and now your plant proteins, I would probably avoid in your country and in our country, to be honest, they're filled with gums, they taste disgusting, you have to consume double the amounts, which again, we just talked about if you have a GI infection, you're in distress, 
why would I be asking you to eat more than you actually need, right? It's about efficiency and getting something into the system. They're also filled with heavy metals because plants hyperaccumulate heavy metals, um, as well as anti-nutrients because plants also have anti-nutrients. So in the U.S., I have a protein powder uh, product that is available that eliminates all of this. So we test it for heavy metals. We test it for phyto, um, phytic acids, and we have the one-scoop comparison. Um, but again, if you're in another country, I wouldn't recommend plant. I wouldn't recommend whey. Um, if you're, if you, you're reacting to it, um, you could try something like hemp protein, um, organic soy, maybe an okay option. But again, you just really want to look, stay away from the artificial sweeteners and the gums and additives that they put in it. Okay. That makes sense. And, um, next up, these are all very common foods that uh, most athletes are going to eat if they are pursuing, um, physique transformation. So this is really interesting to me because I'm one of those. And, uh, the next one I have is, uh, those zero calorie in quotes, diet foods like konjac noodles, zero calorie sauces and the likes. Yeah, they're indigestible, right? That's what makes them zero calories. They're indigestible, mm. which means that you're at increased risk for having it either sit in your stomach and feed bacteria or just cause GI irritation and expel everything that's in your system. Both wow. of those scenarios are not very pleasant. I will say in small amounts, cognac root is amazing. We use glucose uh, glucomannan in our formulation because it's a natural fiber. It's linked to lowering cholesterol. But if you've ever actually eaten those like, uh, cognac root noodles, you'll probably see them in your stool. Like they just go from one to the other because the body doesn't digest it. So, uh, just take that into consideration. Uh, I will say all of the zero calorie things are probably filled with all this chemicals and crap. That's not good for you either. Yeah, that makes sense. What about what are your thoughts on um, high fiber bread and wraps that also uh, tend to be lower in calories than their normal fiber counterparts very often? So um, fiber, again, is that indigestible reason why they're lower in calories and fiber is harder to digest. So again, chicory root, inulin, um, sometimes they'll use like vital wheat protein to try and do like high protein bread. Um, all of these things are, are just excess processing. At the end of the day, the best thing for you is going to be your backyard, your garden. Obviously, that's not, I don't have a garden. I live in an apartment, a studio apartment in the middle of the city. But that's the best, right? Like when we're thinking of how, how good your food is. I would say, think about how many steps it takes to get to you. Does it take two steps? Is it just the farmer's market? Or is it maybe three or four steps because it's going from a country nearby? Or is it five, six, seven, eight steps? Because that original, let's say, cognac plant um, or uh, chicory root extract has to be extracted, uh, pulverized, heated, cooled, heated again then gone through a different shipment through to a different country, then reformulated into this product that you're consuming and then shipped to another country to develop and deliver the product. Like that took a long time to get to you. So, right, that's not going to be the best food source. 
Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So that's it for the foods. Now I want to go move on to the supplements. So you mentioned one yourself. You you refer to greens powders. And I know that especially in America, they are quite popular among the general population. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on, well, first, what are what what are they purported to do and do they actually do it? I have no idea what they're purported to do. Um, <laughs> like antioxidants, de-bloating, like people will throw whatever they want claim onto it. Um, they're basically an excuse not to eat your fruits and vegetables. Um, and that's just not how it works. Our bodies digest foods very specific to the type that it's consumed in, right? Think about the major differences of someone who is eating a whole apple versus someone who is drinking orange juice their entire life. It's completely different because all of our vitamins, all of our minerals, they actually attach to those fibers. And so when we strip it of the fibers or we change the any sort of heating or cooling or pulverizing or whatever we're doing to get it into that state, our bodies are going to digest it completely differently. Our bodies don't know that that's an apple anymore, right? It knows that it's pure sugar, if it's apple juice, it's just fructose uh, or and some glucose. Um, and so when it comes to greens powders, I have a full blog post on this, by the way. There's eight scientific ways from mouth to finish acids, bases that get involved that, again, just reach out to me and I will give you guys the link. You can always just go to corpreform.com and search the blog for greens powders and it'll go through all the evidence around greens powders. Ah, oh, perfect. Okay. So essentially, you are saying they are BS. Don't waste your money on them. Eat your fruit and vegetables. Yeah. I talked to the guy who owns one of the largest uh, research facilities and manufacturers of uh, and databases. So what their company does is essentially take, like, let's say an apple again, and it'll completely take all the uh, chemicals in Apple, put it into its database and say, if we were to give a human being excess, like amounts of this in, in a lot, would it be something that we can market and extract and sell? So if you think about this database, that's how curcumin came about, right? It's about curcumin's actually the, the component of turmeric that is beneficial. So when I asked him and I was like, have you heard of greens powders? He was like, what? And I was like, well, have you heard about like this and coming out? And he says, that is the silliest thing. There is almost no foods and, and components in our database that, that would elicit that. Like we spend millions and billions of dollars on trying to find that next curcumin. And to think that someone would just say, oh, it's broccoli powder down. He was like, no way. He was like, there is no way. <laughs> that is crazy. Really interesting. All right. Well, then we know now we all know not to waste our money on those. And um, the next one on my list would be probiotics. What are they? Are they worth your money? What do they do? I go into this again in that mini course. And for all of these, we go into I actually give you all the reasons in the mini course about the greens and the probiotics and the L-glutamine and all the things. Um, and I tell you which ones are good, which ones are bad. Um, but Overall, you can just Google. There's certain strains of probiotics that are known to have a specific outcome. So generic probiotics taken over the counter, they're not going to do anything to you because you have not created a disease state to link a specific strain to. 
And then on top of it, you think of something like, uh, let's say L-Ruteri, right? So Lactobacillus ruteri. Um, that has like hundreds and hundreds more of strains. So L-Ruteri could be L-Ruteri 3559. It could be 22234. It could be 15678. All of the L-Ruteris, only a spe very specific strain has been documented to have a very specific outcome in a very specific population. So unless you have worked backwards from the disease state to the probiotic, it just doesn't make sense. Mm, I see. So it's one of those cases where something that works for a very specific section of a population and a population in a disease state is going to benefit from. But then they market it to everybody as if we all need probiotics. Right. Okay, that makes sense. And what about prebiotics? What's the difference between a probiotic and a prebiotic? So a prebiotic is the fiber. The probiotic is the bacteria that feeds on the fiber. Okay, that makes sense. And so are prebiotics worth someone's money? No, because we have fiber in our food. Cool. <laughs> that, that, that seals the deal for me. Right. Beautiful. Okay, so that's really interesting. In the end, it all comes back to the five pillars that you mentioned, the basics of healthy eating, looking after your stress levels uh, your and your exercise. And um, the majority of, well, the supplements we've mentioned are not worth your money. And the foods that we've mentioned could actually, that which are very common in our community, are actually going to potentially have more of a detrimental effect than a positive effect. Have I summarized the conversation effectively or have I missed out on anything? You killed it. This was awesome. We covered so many good details. I agree. This was a brilliant conversation. I'm so grateful that you made time for it. Now, before I let you go, could you plug anything that you'd like? And I'm going to put everything in the show notes for the audience. Um, yeah, I mean, feel free to reach out on Instagram for any of the links to any of the resources. You can always go to coreperform.com and it'll have all of our coaching options. It can give you access to me. It'll give you free recipes, free gut health knowledge, hormone knowledge, uh, probiotic, <laughs> whatever you want knowledge on there. And if you're interested in the mini course, it's under the coaching tab as well. Perfect. So Instagram, is it Dasha Fitness? Is that right? Yep. Perfect. And coreperform.com. I will link both in the show notes as well as the blog post on the greens powder and the um, study that you referred to, Hughes at all 2021. Awesome. Yep. Well, Thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for being on. Dear listeners, thank you so much for giving me, giving us some of your time as usual. And until next time. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you soon.